Uh, good evening. Uh, if you turn over the page, follow on as we read our first uh, reading from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to, 11, uh, 1 to 17. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezim of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Sheer Jashup, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, be, ca <coughs> Excuse me. be careful, keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ezram, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place, it will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be waste, laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. We can read the fulfilment of Isaiah's prophecy in Matthew 1 from verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to, to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. 
Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to make, take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, good evening, great to be with you. My name is Rowan. I'm the assistant minister down at the Garrison Church. I've just been down at four, so I bring their welcome, not their welcome, their hello, probably, rather, uh, to you. It's great to be with you and to share... Uh, this passage with you this evening. Uh, in the year 2000 in England, um, in a northern railway station, uh, they found a slogan, a poster, that says, keep calm and carry on. It was a slogan from World War II. Now, I've been a, a massive watcher of the crown, and you can very much see the, uh, the spirit of Britain in our Queen in that in that series, but that was a slogan in which it was only apparently used in a few small places, keep calm, carry on. And in a similar way, actually, the message we get tonight from Isaiah, and what we'll see is also in the nativity scene, the message for us could be summed up in a similar fashion, perhaps with less British stoicism. And look at seven, verse four, it says, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Keep calm and don't be afraid. And now we're going to look at those words in context, but as you sit them out of context, they're quite beautiful words, aren't they? In the midst of our world, in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our fears, keep calm and don't be afraid. What would that look like for you? Today, as, as you sit here, what are the things in which you might fear, the decisions that you might be facing, perhaps the fear that desires will not be met, that physical or financial needs might not be met, or perhaps as you think about following Christ uh, and the difficulty that might be for all kinds of reasons, you think about, or you might fear, how you will stand firm, or perhaps you're struggling with a particular sin and so you fear the moment of temptation. Well, tonight's message is a word of comfort to us. Keep calm and don't be afraid. 
this kind of calm presence that we are called to in the midst of our lives following Christ. But we're going to see how they are words for us by first seeing how they were words for their original context. And for that, we need to go to Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, But these words also come in this setting with a sign. It's a sign that we're familiar with, a sign at Christmas we sing about, the sign of Emmanuel. In chapter 7, verse 14, we read, Therefore the Lord Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and and we will call him Emmanuel. Let's see how these verses apply in their original context, what we can draw out of them, but then particularly also their fulfilment in the nativity scene of Matthew 1, if you follow with me on my first point, a threat. Now, I don't know about you, but as the reading was uh, read wonderfully for us, uh, there's a lot of names, a lot of places, and a lot of things going on. And so I'm just going to give us some very broad brushstrokes to understand the context so as to get to the message and the sign within it. But what we see here in in verses 1 and 2 is we are observers of a king, king of Judah. His name is King Ahaz, and he's a descendant of David, and that's significant, so just note that away. But he is also a king who is afraid. And the cause of his fear, we see very early on in the first verses, is a political crisis. This is 734 BC. We need not to go into all details, but in verses 1 and 2, we learn that two kingdoms, two kings nearby, are attacking Ahaz, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. They've ganged up on him, and there's a reason for that, and the reason is actually an impending threat from a bigger kingdom, Assyria, if you imagine them coming down from from the north and sweeping across. And so as we come to this prophecy where Isaiah comes and meets King Ahaz, Ahaz is at the aqueduct of his, the borders of of Jerusalem, probably checking the stores of water for fear of this impending threat of attack from these two kings. See, these two kings have ganged up on him because they, they think perhaps if they could coerce or get Judah to align with them, they might have some success against the Assyrian war machine. But what we know and what the context points out for us is that King Ahaz has already aligned himself somewhat with the Assyrian kingdom, making an alliance with them. And this is all important background for what we get into next. See, Ahaz, he, in the midst of his circumstances, his immediate situation, with the threat of of two powers breathing down his neck, he is rightly terrified, we're told, shaking like the trees of the forest. And then Isaiah comes to him with a message from the Lord, and he says, Keep calm and don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Now, we know that the reason he can keep calm and not be afraid is because the Lord has promised him deliverance if he trusts in him. We can see that in verses 4 and 9. 
See, the Lord, far from letting these other kings overrun the kingdom of Judah, the Lord promises that their two kingdoms themselves will be overrun. They'll be like two smouldering stumps, we're told. But Ahaz is to respond to this promise. And if he responds incorrectly, we see in verse 9 there's going to be huge consequences. The prophet says to Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And so we're met here with a king, and we know from actually two kings and chronicles, he wasn't a great king. There weren't many great kings actually in the book of uh, Kings and Chronicles. But here he's offered a moment of grace that if he entrusts himself to God's promises, if he keeps calm and is not afraid, then God would deliver them, deliver Israel and deliver him. But if he does not stand firm in his faith, he will not stand at all. He must choose. Will he trust in God and his promises or will he trust in his own allegiances? In this case, will he trust in Assyria and its military power by making an alliance with them? Now, it's easy to detach ourselves from his situation, but if you imagine for a moment the bind that he must have found himself in, his immediate pressure, those powers breathing down his neck, the appeal to trust in a strong military power at that point, to make an allegiance of some kind, an alliance with Assyria would have been really tempting. In fact, it would have been the, the common sense thing to do. And to trust God in that moment, you can imagine, would seem as madness. All you have is a word of promise. It's so easy to let the immediate fears and circumstances, isn't it, to drive our decisions. Often our decisions that grow out of fear, though, are bad ones. What they lack is the larger view of things. And that's what we see here with Ahaz. He's been given this word of promise. But the immediate fears and his circumstances drive him to try and make his own plans for safety, his own plans for success, rather than trusting in the Lord and his promises. Well, how does Ahaz respond? Does he trust? Does he stand firm in his faith? The challenge of verse 9. Well, we see in our second point, with the coming of a sign, that he doesn't. See, look at what happens in verses 10 to 12. And this is another moment of grace that God extends to Ahaz. The Lord instructs Ahaz to ask him for a sign. Now, this is like a, a blank check. He's, he's encouraged to ask for a sign, any sign that would encourage him to believe. But look how Ahaz responds in verse 12. But Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, at first hearing, this sounds like it's quite a pious response to the Lord's request, but actually it's a demonstration of his faithlessness in this situation. See, it's not that he doesn't want to test God, rather he doesn't want to trust God in this moment. These are like the Pharisees in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, where they're described as outwardly following the law, but inwardly their hearts are far from God. And so Ahaz makes his choice. And we see here in 
not asking for a sign. He tries to manage the situation without God rather than calmly and confidently entrusting himself to the Lord. He rashly and fearfully entrusts himself to what will be a greater danger to him, the king of Assyria. So he's refused a sign. But then we see that God gives him a sign anyway. And we see this in verse 14, which was read before. And note that this sign, we read it as words of comfort because we rightly read it through the lens of the nativity story that we read earlier as a fulfilment to this sign. And that's a right thing to do, a right tendency to jump to see Jesus in this good news. But this sign initially for Ahaz is, is bad news. It's a sign of judgment. The Lord says, I will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And what we see is that this sign, in this context to Ahaz, is actually a sign of his coming judgment. And we see that from the verses that follow. See, this immediate sign for Ahaz, this child to be born of a woman, a virgin, but that can also be translated young woman in this context, if you look at the Bible notes. This firstly and foremostly is bad news for Ahaz. Firstly, it's a sign of destruction. Look at verses 15 to 17. It's a sign of destruction to those kings who would threaten Ahaz initially. Before this child ages to maturity, before he can accept right and reject wrong, That's about the age of 12 to 13 years. The prophecy says that the lands of the two kings will be laid waste. They'll be smouldering logs. And we know in history that this happens. Assyria comes and lays waste to these two kings. But secondly, and worse for Ahaz and Israel, in verse 17 we see that this sign also is a picture of a judgment for Judah. Isaiah says, at the time the boy reaches maturity, he will be eating curds and honey. Uh, This is a picture not of a luxury diet of some kind. Uh, This is a diet of hard times that's going to come upon Israel. There's a language and imagery of of a razor, Israel being like a a razor that's going to give Jerusalem a haircut. It's going to leave them desolate, going to take them into exile. And again, we know that all this happens. And so the great irony here is that King Ahaz gets the Assyria that he wants. But Assyria comes to destroy rather than to rescue him. And sadly it's true of real life too, isn't it? Those things often that we trust in, in place of God, can easily morph into cruel masters and sometimes wreak havoc and destruction in our own lives. Well, the sign in this immediate setting is most likely Isaiah's own son that you'll read about in chapter 8 in your own time, and the virgin or young woman is likely Isaiah's wife. And so, in the future, when Ahaz looks at this child, Emmanuel, he will see how foolish he has been entrusting himself to Assyria and not to the Lord. The sign for Ahaz is bad news. But we also know that the sign is one of hope. 
And the prophet Isaiah speaks constantly a message of both judgment and hope. And the hope here is in the name, Emmanuel, God with us. Though there is judgment in exile, this name, God with us, this virgin who will give birth to a son will one day raise up a new king as from a virgin, a king that will save God's people and we'll see, save God's people from their sin. And this child will remind them that God is with them. This is the good news promised. Well, as we come to the third and final point, we see the fulfillment of this passage ultimately in Jesus. So it's fulfilled in its immediate context in Isaiah 7. And it's fulfilled in its ultimate context Uh, The ultimate fulfilment is found in the birth of Jesus. In Matthew, we are told that Emmanuel means God with us. He quotes Isaiah exactly and then adds it, God with us, as if to announce it strongly to us. God has not abandoned us. And this would have been wonderful news to the original listeners, but it extends to be wonderful news to us as well. This is the great fulfilment of the prophet Isaiah. The Lord has not abandoned his people, his creation. Rather, he takes on flesh to restore himself to himself a people and to save them from their sins. And in the broader picture, we too have rebelled against God and we are exiled from him. But this is a picture of God's kindness and drawing near to us as he takes on flesh to restore a people to himself. God has come to us so that we can come back to him. This is the promise of Emmanuel. This is the news of rejoicing in a weary world. And the beauty of this promise in Matthew's Gospel is pointed out at the beginning, but also at the end of the book. The book of Matthew closes with Jesus saying, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God with us, I am with you. And so we await Christ's return. And that's what Advent's about, as we saw last week and we prayed last week. It's a season of waiting, waiting for Christ's first coming in his humility that we celebrate at Christmas and his life and ministry, death and resurrection. But We await his coming again in majesty and we live, as it were, between those poles. That's how Christian life looks like. So what does life look like in the midst of those circumstances? There's many things that we will face, many fears. Perhaps things come to mind for you. It might be a decision. Following Christ faithfully might call you to do certain things or not do certain things might be a relationship, it might just be being faithful, it might be not giving in to temptation and sin. But what does it look like for us in the midst of our circumstances now, with the fears that we have, to live faithfully following Christ? Well, I think we get a glimpse of what it looks like in this story of the nativity in Joseph. See, in Matthew 1, Joseph, having discovered that his fiance is pregnant. He knows that he's not the father, and so he plans to quietly divorce her. 
like Ahaz in one sense. He can only see the short-term view of things. And he decides quietly to take matters into his own hands, presumably admirably, to divorce Mary quietly. However, like Ahaz, Joseph receives a message from a messenger, an angel. And this angel's first words to Joseph are, don't be afraid. You can see the connection there. Don't be afraid. And then this angel speaks of a sign of a child that it will be conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And so for Joseph, trusting God, walking faithfully in his ways, will require him seeing that bigger picture, being not afraid, but walking faithfully, following the word of the Lord. And you can imagine for Joseph, this is is scary like it was for Ahaz. How would people explain this situation that he finds himself in? How would people treat him? How would people treat Mary, this child? He could have given in to fear and tried to sort out an immediate solution by divorcing her quietly. That way he would have kept his reputation intact. But instead, unlike Ahaz, he listened to the words of the Lord. He was not afraid. And it's a beautiful contrast that we see there between Joseph and Ahaz. Isaiah's call to Ahaz was to cast off fear, keep calm and don't be afraid. But here we see beautifully contrasted in Joseph that he takes those words and listens. In Isaiah 7, here is the reigning king Ahaz called to trust God's word, given a blank check offer of any sign to encourage him to believe, and he won't. But in Matthew 1, here is a carpenter called to lose perhaps what he does have because he is seeking to see God fulfil his scriptures. And in faith, he is willing to pay the price. At last, we have a true son of David who believes. In Joseph, we have a model of faith who was everything Ahaz was not. He was not afraid. He kept calm and followed Christ. And in Jesus, we have the promise of God with us. So when we face circumstances that seem frightening, when we face paths of obedience which seem hard, when we are weary from a tough year, what are we to do? Well, we are to keep calm and not be afraid. And we do so not in our own strength, but with the reality and the wonderful truth of Emmanuel, the sign, God is with us. Let's pray that that truth might sink deeply into our lives. Father, we thank you for this, your word, as it encourages us to have a calm confidence a fearlessness in the face of our circumstances and fears, not based upon anything within ourselves, uh, but the work of Christ for us and the Spirit's empowerment in us.
And so wherever we are tonight and whatever we are facing, we pray that this message of keeping calm and not fearing in Christ might be pressed into the recesses of our hearts and that we might know it truly and deeply. In Jesus' name, amen.